WTLA North Syracuse, WSGO Oswego, W249BC Mattydale, W261AC Oswego, WTKWHD2 Bridgeport, ESPN Radio. Can we review our status here, Cy? Let's look at this thing from a uh, from a uh, standpoint of status. Can't go backwards. Can't go forward. You have nothing better to do at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Lisa, if you don't like your job, you don't strike. You just go in every day and do it really half-assed. That's the American way. This is a great day. A really great day. All across CNY, it's the 315 with Brian Higgins. Halfway home, here's what's happened so far. What's happened so far? I'll tell you what's happened so far. Bayheim! Yeah, nothing's actually happened with him today, but it's just things are happening. We're percolating. We're in the Bayheim business. Well, we'll be hearing a lot from uh, Jim in the, the coming days, I think. Maybe even as the program goes along, we've got some uh, cuts from him on uh, Gomez uh, this morning. We'll get to that. Your calls on Jim and whatever you want to talk about. You can talk about whatever you want to talk about. 315-437-7644. Uh, Terry Foy from Inside Lacrosse will be joining us uh, momentarily. 315-437-7644. We're going to call Terry on that. And then later in the show, you're going to call me on that number, and we'll talk about uh, lacrosse and whatever you want. And I, I'm intrigued to get Terry's thoughts on the Orange. He covered the game, the opener, Syracuse and Vermont. The Orange won it 7-5. It's like, ugh, 7-5. What, what, what's going on? What's going on here? So many young guys. The new 22. What, what do you got? What's going on with him and Joey Spolina? One goal on 15 shots. Then again, it's... His first game. And and where are we at? And it looks like we got uh, Terry on the line now, so we'll bring in the, the, the CEO of Inside Lacrosse, Terry Foy. Terry, I was saying, I, I don't know how often I've actually paid attention uh, to your title. I think you've had it for a while. I didn't realize you were the CEO of the whole operation. I don't know where I've been this whole time, but uh, it's glad to, glad to have you on here talking a little lax today. Yeah, happy to join you. And uh, no worries. It's you know one of those things that... Uh, don't like to make a big deal out of, so uh, whatever. I'm still a content guy. Yeah, I mean, like whenever we've seen each other over the years, you're there. You're covering a game. You're doing your thing, and uh, you know, exactly. you, you were covering the the Q's Vermont game over the weekend. And I, there's, I guess you can read that game two ways, right? Like Syracuse got the win. That that's good. Gary Gate year two starting off with a win. At the other side, only seven goals with all these highly touted players might be a little disconcerting. What did you make of the the whole thing of? Basically, completely new Syracuse team hitting the field all at once. Is it a cop-out to say that I actually reacted more to the reaction than to the game itself? And the reason being that after having seen Syracuse in the fall and gotten to know a lot of folks involved with this program, be it with the staff, obviously folks around and close to the program like yourself or the players, you know, it's not a switch that gets slipped and you go from – what they were in 2021 to what they were in 2022 to what they were in 2023. I mean, it's the nature of modern college lacrosse that you don't win by virtue of good players. You win by virtue of good programs and it takes a long time to build them. It is a process. And so what I was way more interested in was how Syracuse fans reacted to it specifically on the heels of 
thinking about where the reaction was 365 days ago, coming off of a one-sided win over Holy Cross, opening the Gary Gate era, and this unbridled enthusiasm that, in my opinion, was missing the forest for the trees. And so here we are a year on, and there were a lot of promising signs coming away from this game against the Vermont team, which I think is going to be you know, a, a meaningful step back from where they were last year, specifically without Thomas McConvey, who probably has a pretty rightful claim to the best player in program history, right, right alongside a guy like Ian McKay. But they're still going to compete for the American East Championship, and obviously, you know, Keith has another American East tenor coming in on Friday. So ultimately, you put nine freshmen on the field or whatever it was, you're going to see a lot of issues with, from the standpoint of consistency. And in game one, you're going to see a lot of issues with nerves. So I was coming at it from the standpoint of not overreacting regardless of what we saw, positive or negative, heading into the game. And I'm, you know, very, very fascinated by the balance of positive reaction to negative reaction coming away from the fan base. Yeah, I mean, it's one, you've got the recruiting class coming in when you've got the new 22 and you've got all of the hype that has surrounded Joey Spillina. Uh, it's I guess it's twofold because you know this uh, Terry. You guys do the recruiting rankings every year, and you know we've had Ty Zanders on before, and he does a great job with all of that. That you know there's there's a number one recruit every year, no matter what. Not only always is it going to be a superstar, but you expect him to be a good player. It, it feels like from all accounts, it's like this guy is the guy. Like of number one recruits, he is high high on the list. You know, I don't know how much you need to evaluate his opening performance, but how much do you think that he, Spolina, can be, you know, the guy for Syracuse when you look at over the, the span of four years coming up? So I wrote the magazine feature about him being the number one recruit in our recruiting issue this year, and I actually am going to push back on that premise a little bit because I think when you look at it on the span of 10 or 15 years of number one recruits, he's not the guy. Okay. And I say that because he does have physical limitations that prevent his ceiling from being super high. Brennan O'Neill, uh, Griffin shuts level high. Connor Schellenberger even. I think that the, the fact of the matter is that when you look at the last three guys and the next guy in McCabe Millen, and then, you know, jury's still out on Ryan Dunkel, who's the, the guy after that. Like, Joey Sweet has the most obvious limitations of all of them. But the difference is, and the reason that he's such a qualified number one, is because his floor is so high. I have compared him to Shaq Stanwick in that context for a really long time. There was almost no scenario in which Shaq Stanwick was not going to be a good player. And even though I think there are folks that look at his Hopkins tenure as lacking something, he started all but one game in his career. He scored 200 points, and he battled broken vertebrae for either two or three of the seasons that he was on campus. Let his team do a Final Four. Like, like Shaq Stanwick met his floor. He met his very high floor, even if he didn't reach the ceiling established by his brother Steele, who was also a number one recruit. And I think that in that context, what's interesting about Joey's debut is the nature, the reason I was so confident in his ability to meet his floor is because he wasn't going to have any of the issues that can sometimes befall number one recruits. I wasn't concerned about the competition level because he had played up and he had played on the you know most competitive club ecosystem that he could have possibly played on, and he had been successful and productive. I wasn't worried about his ability to manage the attention because he's he was in the MLL All Star game as a as a nine year old, right? He was in the World Series of Youth Lacrosse as a ten year old. Like mm-hmm. he has dealt with these types of things for 
more than half of his adult life. And I wasn't concerned about his physical conditioning because he's incredibly committed, nor his academic situation because he's incredibly committed to that as well. But I do think that this is an interesting test, particularly, and I, I thought Gary Gates spoke about it very well after the game, just from the very obvious fact that the fact that the ball hadn't gone in yet was getting to him and he adjusted his approach as a result. Now, I think it's also fair to say that the offense in total wasn't playing well. Mm -hmm. So there were these sources of pressures coming from both ends where it was like, we haven't separated from this Vermont team. I don't have to, I don't get to take my foot off the gas and try to stop scoring because we're up by eight goals. But also, you know, I've taken six shots and I haven't scored. I've taken eight shots and I haven't scored. I've taken 10 shots and I haven't scored. And the way in which that mounts, I, I, it clearly affected his, his approach. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that, you know, there were, when you look at that stat line, it's pretty easy to see a, an alternate scenario play out. But the other side of the coin is that, like, the goal he scored was a very, very important goal. It was a game-changing goal. Mm -hmm. At that point, Vermont had scored uh, three straight goals and had, or four straight goals and had taken the lead. And he scored a goal in the last minute of a quarter, which for my estimation should always count for a goal and a half. And the effect that it has a momentum, it stopped Vermont's run and it set up their ability to score twice in the fourth quarter and ultimately seal the game. So even though he shot one of 15 and left a couple of assists on the field by virtue of, of, you know, his teammates inability to can good looks, he still made a game changing play that uh, I think is reflective of, of what, folks' hopes were up again. Man, I, I, Terry, I have not played a good game of Know Your Stanwicks in a long time, so here in the Shack, <laughs> at some point I could rattle off all eight and feel pretty confident I'd, I'd, have, them in, I'd have them in order. Have, it's been a minute since Shaq and Covey both uh, both graduated, but you're right. Like He was the number one recruit. Like Steele, obviously, you know, he had the, uh, at least of the guys, I mean, he had the highest uh, level, but you know, Shaq was a very good player. But now we talk about the rest of this recruiting class coming in. The way the way Gary phrased it, and, and, and the way he likes to talk about it, he's like, "Well, I got the best player in America, and I got the best player in, in Canada." So when when you load up a Finn Thompson next to uh, like that, I, I know some people at least think like the ceiling on Thompson, right? When you when you look at him, uh, a big guy has the Canadian stick skills. Like the ceiling on him, when you talk about ceilings, might might potentially be higher in, in some way. It is higher, in my opinion. I don't I, I don't think that that's that you know, like controversial to say, um, I think his, his ceiling is higher and his floor is potentially lower because of some of the issues that, you know, we just addressed with, with, with Joey and specifically with Finn, you know, that lack of familiarity by virtue of what was lost to COVID in the recruiting process and the closure of the Canadian border. But, you know, it, it certainly looks one game in like those concerns are allayed. And, and I just want to make the point that, there's about a thousand kids in a class that play division one lacrosse. So when you parse out the distinction between one and five, it's negligible, right? We're talking about, you know, tenths of a percentage. And so I think that, uh, you know, I, I got an opportunity to talk to Finn as well and, and write that feature. And, and what I came away from that experience was, you know, just Uber lax rat, right? And there's an interesting difference between Canadian lax rats versus American lax rats. And, it's like, you know, kind of that griminess of just growing up, digging out ground balls in the corners of, of you know, barns in, in all different parts of Ontario and, mm -hmm. and Alberta and British Columbia. And it creates a set of experiences and developed skills that manifest in different ways when you find them, you find yourself on the biggest stage of college across and playing in the, uh, the formerly known as Carrier Dome. It's going to take a while for me to touch, adjust the JMA Dome. I, I don't know if you have fully made that, that transition yet, but... 
but uh, but he's going to be an incredibly riveting player, and I think that Syracuse fans are going to fall in love with him in a way that's uh, going to feel a lot like the way they felt fell in love with Owen Health two years ago. Uh, yeah, I just say the dome a lot, so that that takes away a lot of my concerns because <laughs> I know I will screw it up over over time. Terry Foy inside lacrosse is our guest, and you know Terry, big picture wise, like when you're talking about number one recruits, like all those other ones you mentioned when you mentioned Brennan O'Neill and. Connor Schellenberger, and I, I really like Griffin Schutz last year. He, he is uh, terrifying the way he can dodge to the cage. And you mentioned Millen coming in next year. I, I'd say the main current problem for Syracuse, right, is they got to play against all of these guys multiple times every year because they're all in the ACC. How much uh, bigger does that make the task for Gary Gate of what they have to do to rebuild here, considering you know all of those other top guys you talk about are literally in the same league? So, I mean... It's interesting because I don't think, and I think last year kind of illustrated this, their challenge is not being able to win a game. They beat Duke last year. It's about the consistency, the week-to-week consistency, and being able to you know, protract that over the course of six or eight weeks, depending on how the ACC you know, kind of reformats their schedule going forward when it sounds like they're going to get away from the, the six-game schedule where you play two teams twice. And I think ultimately – the challenges that Syracuse is facing are also being faced at Duke and Carolina and Virginia and Notre Dame. Like, how do you figure out how all these parts come together? Mm-hmm. The simple fact is that these five programs are always going to have talent. And whether it's, you know, coming through the traditional recruiting platforms or it's coming through the transfer portal, it's only going to continue to exacerbate itself. And I think when you look at the best, most consistent programs in college across over the last five years, they've been separated not by virtue of their talent, but by virtue of their consistent performance. And Maryland last year to me was the chief example of it. And, and, you know, candidly Syracuse showed that they belonged on the same field against Maryland, even if they didn't win. And they gave them one of the stiffer tests that the Terps saw. But when you went player for player up and down the roster, I mean, this is not to underrate the impact of a guy like Keaton Conn or Anthony DeMeo or Jonathan Donville. But Logan Wisnoskis was a system player who had one of the most productive seasons in recent memory and won the Tawarton because of his unselfishness and his versatility. And what John Tillman has established in that program is the fact that his players show up on Monday ready to prepare for Saturday the exact same way, regardless of what had happened the week prior. And that is what Gary Gates, Dave Petromel, and Pat March are striving for. And, and the simple fact is that every staff has to develop a 50-man unit of doing that with that level of consistency in a reflection of their own image. It can't be John Desco's approach that this staff is implementing because they have to kind of believe it to their core, and then they have to get you know all those social interactions between those 50 guys, like, like a huge percentage of them have to be rowing the boat the same direction. And that is what determines success at this level. And it's not just in terms of beating Notre Dame and Virginia, it's in terms of beating Vermont and Albany. Like the simple fact is that a win over Vermont in February is a win. And you can grouse about the manner in which they won. But again, using the term modern college lacrosse, wins do not come free. Mm-hmm. Chris Weiss is a good coach and he gets paid too. And his players care and they want to win too. And so they show up and they won the American East last year and played in the NCAA tournament. They show up in the dome expecting to win. And the fact that you sent them home is something to be accomplished. But the difference is now you've got, you know, seven, eight freshman contributors who have never won a college or cross game, right? 
And so now they go to bed Saturday night having won their first college lacrosse game. How does that affect the way they show up on Sunday, getting treatment, watching film, preparing for the Great Danes, and how does it show? How does it manifest in how they show up on, on Monday ready to work, learn the game plan, sharpen their skills, make sure that they maintain their physical acuity, stamina, et cetera, and get ready to play another game in four days. That's what this is about. And it's so, so hard to make the adjustment because for most of these guys, winning high school lacrosse games was simply about showing up and being better than your opponent. It is not what cuts it at this level anymore. Yeah, and heck, the team there at Syracuse is playing next, Albany. Um, whoever's left in the team from last year uh, lost to Albany. Like, that was a, it was a driving rainstorm in, in Albany, but that was a game Albany won uh, last year. Uh, Terry Foy is our guest uh, from Inside Lacrosse. Last thing for you, Terry. I mean, last year it, it became clear... You know, reasonably quickly, certainly after I'd say the the Maryland Virginia game last year, I'm like, all right, this is Maryland's this is Maryland's season uh, to lose. Um, do do you have the sense any team is going to present themselves uh, in that way this year? Or when you look at Maryland and Virginia and Notre Dame and Cornell and whomever else you want to toss to the top, that this is going to be kind of a, a topsy turvy year in lacrosse. Yeah, I think it'll be a little more topsy-turvy, and, and I, I say that despite the fact that coming away from the first weekend, which we deem week zero because only 25 teams played, it, it, one of my overarching takeaways was that the good teams are good. I was probably more impressed than anything else by how one-sided Maryland's win over Richmond was, Ohio State's win over Air Force, Rutgers win over Marist, and Duke's win over Bellarmine. And... Syracuse fans listening to this might, you know, hear Marist and Bellarmine and, and not think much of those opponents and certainly hopefully, you know, think a little bit more of, of Air Force and, and Richmond. But the simple fact is that, you know, you watch those games and the ease with which they handled their opposition, you know, looked impressive. And uh, I think that, you know, to varying degrees and for varying reasons, there was, there was especially with Rutgers, probably a reason to, to expect them to take a little bit of time to maybe get back to the level that they exhibited last year as a Final Four team. And based not only on that, but also, you know, on, on what we heard out of, out of their, their early season scrimmages, particularly against Boston University, who was a NCAA tournament team last year, that's not the case. And so, you know, the, the good teams are good. What it means for how they compete with each other, I mean, ultimately that's what the season holds. And is it impossible that a team is going to have the Maryland-esque dominance? No, it certainly isn't. But it had been since 2006 since we'd had an undefeated champion. And, you know, Maryland is the – sixth best, by my account, undefeated champion in the history of the sport on a goal differential basis. So the odds are against uh, another team repeating that performance one year later, much less 15 years later. Yeah. That said, the next time Maryland loses a game, it'll stun me. I'm just not used to it anymore. They hardly <laughs> ever lose, so we'll have to see what happens. All right, Terry, uh, always good to chat. I'm sure we'll do it again soon, and uh, fun to be talking lacrosse again. Thanks for a few minutes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. That is Terry Foy. He's the CEO of Inside Lacrosse. Got to, got to give him the title. That's a good title. You can get that title. That's one of the good ones. We'll take a break. Much more to come back to hoops when we come back here on QSportsTalk.com and ESPN Radio.